B.J. Johnson was 16 years old when he started competing as a swimmer. It was actually a late start. Most athletes begin before they're 10, but he still made it to the USA Swimming National Team. B.J. made up for the lost time in his professional life. In 2016, when he was 29, he co-founded Clear Flame Engine Technologies. He was five years younger than the median age of startup entrepreneurs. His company is developing a kit that makes it possible for diesel motors to run on cleaner, renewable fuels. And he says that ultimately, this could cut carbon emissions in half. Now is the time. Let's quit delaying. Let's focus on moving the needle today. This notion of, oh, well, it's okay that five-year-olds in L.A. today have asthma because we'll have electric school buses in 2040. We need to reject that type of thinking and start asking, no, why can't we start making this better today and looking at more ways of solving this problem? Change is coming, oh yeah. Ain't no holding it back. Ain't no running. Change is coming, oh yeah. I'm Yash Pavlik-Slank, and this is Degrees. Real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Today, we'll talk with B.J. Johnson about how he transformed himself from athlete to eco-entrepreneur, about why entrepreneurship is a viable way to pursue a planet-saving career, and about the challenges of being one of the few Black men in his field. Welcome to Degrees, B.J. Thanks, Yesh. Uh, glad to be here. B.J., you are passionate about moving the needle on carbon emissions why are you trying to solve the diesel problem specifically? Yeah, uh, the diesel problem specifically because it's one of the largest drivers of climate change. We've got 4 million trucks on the road just in the U.S. We're burning 60 billion gallons, billion with a B, of diesel fuel. And that is a major carbon emission that we have to begin to solve. And so uh, my co-founder, Julie Bloomreiter, who I met while I was getting, uh, while we were both getting our PhDs in mechanical engineering from Stanford, started the company to find a way to address the diesel problem head on and start mitigating carbon from that sector immediately by transitioning to decarbonized liquid fuels. We'll get in in a moment to what Clear Flame actually does. But right now, I want to know what lit that environmental flame, excuse the pun, uh, to become an environmentalist. When did you realize that you were an environmentalist? Uh, I am a sucker for all the flame puns. That's how we we ended up with our company name anyway. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I think you know it it's something that evolves slowly over time. I was lucky growing up in the Pacific Northwest where there's a lot of things that you can do outdoors, and there's just that kind of inherent appreciation of the environment, especially environment on very different climates, right? Western Washington, Eastern Washington, two totally different places. Um, you know, I think it was around the time that I was really uh, moving from undergrad to grad, though, where the concept of climate change was really sort of elevating to the to the global forefront. But one of the the things that my professor at the time and the the individual who became my thesis advisor, Chris Edwards at Stanford, always shared was again that two halves of the energy problem. And energy is not just a challenge that we have to solve on sustainability, but also something we have to increase access to. And I think that was really what what lit the fire in my mind is is realizing that there was an environment that we had to protect. And I think that was always inherent, but that there was an expansion of that technology that was needed to make the world a better place, too. And I think that framing was just unique to how I'd heard it talked about in the past, like it's two entirely different decoupled concepts. And so 
just that problem solving nature of, of how do we apply mathematics and science and engineering to that really closely coupled and complex global challenge just fascinated me. You went to Stanford, you got an engineering degree, and you found your passion for renewable energy. You could have taken the very safe route and gotten a well-paying job in a lot of places, but instead you and your co-founder decided to create this startup with a brand new idea, probably one that it takes people a little bit of time to wrap their mind around, and you had no funding to start with. Why did you take this risk? Probably because I was dumb enough to at the time. Uh, <laughs> but I think it was, you know, coming out of school, of course, is a, a great time to do it. I mean, what's the worst thing that happens, right? You fail and then you go do something else. So, you know, it, it is a risk, but I think it's a pretty small risk. And the, the opportunity there is just so huge because, you know, especially in these these really commercial and industrial spaces where we're talking about like automotive and, and freight transport, this was Tesla was kind of rising up in its inflection curve at the time. And it just showed how much it took for for a startup to need to lead from the front to really change an industry. And I think even more so now, I'm just confident that without Clearflame driving this conversation on heavy duty decarbonization from the front, it just simply won't happen. And so when you've got that much opportunity and the downside is, oh, well, I'll be sad about it for a while, but you know, I tried. That's That's an easy choice for me. How do you get the confidence to feel okay about failure? That's not something that's part of specifically the American ethos. Uh, I think a lot of people are afraid of taking risks like that. Uh, is there an experience that you had or is, is it, has it just always been part of you to feel comfortable with discomfort? It's a great question. I think I've, I've always hated losing. I've always hated failing. It's the same for what my swimming career was. You know, I wanted to be an Olympian and I ultimately failed in doing that. Um, but I was on the national team for, for a few years and got to compete at world championships representing this, this country. And it's, you know, it's not such a binary choice, right? And I, and I this is probably a, a subject for another podcast, but I do think some of that is, is baked into the American ethos. Like I think maybe highlighting your failures is something we don't do well as a country, but being willing to take that risk that's how we got here as a country in the first place. And I think it's it has been ingrained in entrepreneurship, right? The concept of of fail fast. It's a great point. A lot of truth to that. And and I stand corrected. I, I think you're right. A lot of our American understanding and the bravery that we have as a country in a lot of respects comes from that attitude of we want to achieve more and achieving more comes with risk. Yeah. No, I can it can be done to a fault too, but yes, absolutely. So Clearflame will be on the market next summer, summer of 2022, and it's designed to let industries like farming and railroads and trucking continue to use diesel engines as they have for decades, which environmentalists like me agree are really awful for the environment. But you say that it's not the engines, it's the fuel that matters. So your technology tricks diesel engines into engines that work with anything. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it uh, works with anything, and we've been we've been very much focused on on the decarbonized liquids because one of the advantages of of diesel is the easy portability and the low cost infrastructure that it has. So it's it's not just about the carbon question, but it's about how do you get address the carbon question quickly, and that's where if, if we don't have capital constraints and how we solve the problem, it's a huge tool. But you hit the nail on the head. We like to say we're taking the diesel fuel out of the diesel engine because. Diesel is a bad word. It's a dirty word, but that's because of the fuel and not the engine it runs in. 
And of course, the two are associated because before Clearflame, they've always been coupled together. But there's tremendous power in, in decoupling those two things. And ethanol is cleaner than diesel. I, I actually was at the pump this morning and I saw that it advertised that all fuels available contained at least 10% ethanol. I think that is becoming part of the growing understanding of the common person in America that, you know, that means cleaner fuel, but it is not zero emission. So what's the impact of this technology exactly? You know, one of the advantages that we've had, and, and we didn't choose ethanol because we had some particular affinity for the fuel. It's because it was was out there and its benefits could be quantified. So, for example, we know, you know, Harvard studies, Argonne studies showing ethanols about 45 to 50 percent cleaner than diesel. So that's not perfect, but it's also not something to thumb your nose at either, given how much emission comes from diesel. And so Clearflame's core thesis is let's make that change now. Let's immediately from day one cut the problem in half. But let's continue incentivizing and working with all of the fuel sectors, not just the ethanol one. So a lot of Clearflame's core thesis is if we can cut 50% of the problem away today with what we already have, let's start there. And then let's continue working with the fuel sector, like the ethanol folks, to make sure they're driving the carbon intensity of their product down. So that 45, 50% does become 100%. I think it's actually something a lot of the listeners will probably be comfortable with. I think it's it's similar to the argument for electric vehicles, right? Because our grid is not perfectly clean, but that should not be an excuse to slow deployment of electric vehicles. Let's get the vehicles out there and decarbonize the grid in parallel. I think the same argument works on the liquid fuel front. And to clarify, your technology works with diesel trucks, which, you know, huge emissions right there. Big part of how we get our things, we buy our things, we transport our things all over this country, all over the world. But it is not equally, it, it cannot be adapted to passenger vehicles like my Subaru Forester. Is that right? Um, it could. I mean, it really can function anywhere a diesel engine works. But, you know, when we think about maximizing our impact, part of that is is making our product as good as it can be. But part of it is also really targeting the biggest part of the problem. And your Subaru will be replaced by an electric vehicle a lot more easily than a, a Freightliner semi-truck will or a John Deere tractor. And so it wasn't a technical limitation. It was where we thought the biggest environmental challenge was. And, and of course, that corresponds to the biggest market opportunity, too. So it was really a, an enviro and economic question, not a technical one. I appreciate that. And your goal, as my understanding, is that your goal is to start commercializing these kits, this adaptation to diesel engines in the summer of 2022. And they'll cost about $30,000 a pop. Um, that seems like a lot of money to me. So I, I'm curious how truck companies are reacting. Are, are they going to go for this? Yeah. And, and this is just one of the huge differences between, you know, the passenger car market and the, the trucking market. I can speak to my Mazda 3, you know, I'm putting on maybe 15, 20,000 miles a year and I'm, it's a passenger car. So I'm getting 30, 40 miles to a gallon, um, which hopefully will be electric in my next car. But for the truck, you know, you're going at least 100,000 miles a year and you're pulling a heavy load. So, you know, you're only getting six miles to a gallon or so. And that's just because of how much you're hauling. And so the reality is, yeah, $30,000 is a lot for a passenger car. But if you're switching to a, a low cost fuel and burning as much fuel as a truck does, 
you're probably saving $25,000, $30,000 a year in fuel savings. And so it actually pays itself back relatively quickly. Well, and I think a lot of companies are already seeing that the writing is on the wall. They need to start thinking about the impact of their fleets and the impact of the work that they do on the environment. But this is actually a solution that they can adopt today. How have they reacted to the environmental element of your pitch? That one's been mixed, I would say, only in the sense that everyone out there wants to do better for the environment. I think the challenges that sometimes the fleets run into is they're running on very, very small margins, you know, single digits. And the question is, okay, if if I go green, who is going to pay for that premium? Um, if you're not going to pay me more to deliver my goods, you know, how do I, I make money and stuff like that? And I think that's where some of this resistance to change, it's not that they don't care about the environment, it's that they they feel constrained by their current economics. And that's where Clearflame coming in is so powerful because if we can just completely reject this notion of a this paradigm of the green premium, you have to pay money to go green and say, actually going green can save you money, it becomes an easy choice for anyone. Clearflame is based in Chicago, where I live too, and it's a city with a lot going on in the entrepreneurship space, which is exciting. So I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. But it's also a city with large racial and social disparities. That is something people really know about Chicago, no matter where you're from. How would this technology impact the people of Chicago, for example? This is where I was hoping the conversation, we would get a chance to kind of expand on on the use of the word emissions, because it really does mean two very different things, right? There's greenhouse gases and, you know, largely CO2 that affect climate change. And then there's the air pollutants that affect human beings uh, directly in terms of, you know, lung health, like soot and smog. And and that is one of the areas in which the the racial and, and socioeconomic disparity is so severe. So in Chicago, black and brown residents have close to a decade shorter life expectancy. And if you hear that on the news, you probably think, oh, it's got something to do with violence or something. And no, it's, it's largely the environmental factors, things like air quality. And so Clearflame, we are not just offering a lower carbon product, but we're also offering a, car, a product that doesn't produce any soot, any black, black smoke coming out the tailpipe, and is extremely low in, in smog, lower than the, the levels of smog that unfortunately are already out there in the air today. Um, and so we're not just moving a needle, the needle on climate change over the next few decades, but we're improving the air quality for the people on the ground right now. BJ, you are half black. And in an open letter on your website, you say that your academic and professional successes have often been credited to affirmative action and that people often underestimate you and your co-founder Julie's intelligence because she's a woman. And I'm, I'm quoting from the letter here. You wrote, both of us have felt an immense pressure to overachieve, to be perfect, to prove we even deserve to have our seat at the table. It should not be this way. I'd love for you to talk about these obstacles and how are you dealing with it on a, on a daily basis? Um, obviously, it's a, it's a complex issue. You know, when I think about it on a, on a daily basis, um, it's, it's one of those things that's always in the background. And I think letting, getting caught up on it on a daily basis is one of the things you just have to work to avoid. I like to look at it as you know, when possible, just an, another challenge that that needs solving. You know, is it is it right that, you know, when when Julie or I make mistakes, 
you know, a lot of people think, well, like, oh, well, they probably didn't get in this room on their merits. They had a leg up and that's why they're, they made that mistake or something like that. You know, that thinking needs to go away. Um, but you know what, if, if, and I, I think I can speak for Julie here too. If what we have to do to solve that problem is just try to not make mistakes, of course that will never happen. But that pursuit of perfection um, is something that just exists within yourself. And if you keep your focus on how do I do the best that I can do with the cards that I've, I've been dealt and don't let anything external be any sort of, of constraint or something that holds you back, but am I executing what I fundamentally believe I can do? I don't think that tool should have to exist. And I think we still have a long way to go as a society to get to the point where that is not required to consider to be considered, you know, an equal in these types of, of higher level conversations. Is there a specific example you can give about how these challenges presented themselves to you or to Julie? I can think of a few. Um, we've been in rooms where uh, I've, I've watched Julie presenting the, the hard experimental data of the results that we have on our engine. You know, this is something that you can measure with basic science equipment. And people kind of look sideways at it and say, well, well, that doesn't line with my experience or like, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't expect it to end up that way. And it's, it's always just been a little bit of a surreal conversation to me that, um, you know, the information that, that she's being pre- presenting in a, in a scientific way is being countered, not by other science or other facts, but just by other opinions. And I think the fact that those are sort of treated at an even weight is a is is a symptom of of this larger problem that there's this increased request for deliverables to be treated to be treated equally. It's hard to hear, frankly, and and uh, but I understand it as a woman. And I I I guess my follow up question there is: Do you feel like people react differently to you and take you more seriously as a man than than Julie in some cases? Yeah, um, I I think that has absolutely been true. I <laughs> being half black, the the tone of my skin can swing quite a bit um, between uh, winter growing up in Seattle and summers in California, and I've I've noticed impacts even with stuff like that. Um, whether my hair is cut short or whether I've got my nice fro going on like I do now, you know these these things I've I've noticed a a, a difference in the the seriousness of which we're perceived. It's a it's a force in the world that that shouldn't exist. There's another side to this, right? Back to Clearflame. Does Clearflame bring something new to the table because it's founded by a woman, your co-founder, Julie Bloomwriter, and a half black man, or does it not intersect with that? I think it does. I think the fact that we are looking at the problem in a in a fundamentally different way. Um, going back to what I was saying is, you know, it's not just about sustainability. It's not just how you address the, you know, the capital rich and the easy to electrify sectors, but how do you do, a, what do you do about the blue collar down to earth near the rail yards part of this problem? The fact that we have this, this equity focus on how energy is deployed, I think is what has made us look at the problem at a different way and look and find a solution that we can expand equitably without a lot of capital so it can start impacting those lower income areas. I don't think that's an accident. BJ, you're an engineer and you are also an athlete. Those seem like different people with big time commitments and different parts of your brain to use, not to mention your body. Tell me about those two parts of your life. 
I would correct you slightly and say, um, I am an engineer and I was an athlete. Ah. I think the thing that really has tied the two together and, and what I've always, um, why I felt I've managed to, to hold them both together at the same time is uh, really two things. Partially the discipline that has come with both. I've always felt that it was very self-reinforcing what you have to do to be able to complete a PhD versus to try to rise to the the top of a sport is, is very similar. And I think that discipline is required because it comes from a very similar challenge. Um, both of those things can be a, a very lonely experience. You know, when you're swimming in the pool, it's just you and the water and the black line that's on the bottom keeping you going straight. And when you're in the lab finishing your dissertation, um, you are completely on your own to to make that solution and that result a reality. And that combined challenge and the combined discipline that I think it, it helped train me in has just been a huge benefit for entrepreneurship as well, because that is also can be a very lonely profession at times. Now I want to take a little mental break. I have some quick and dirty personal questions that we're asking all of our guests. Uh, so you have to choose one or the other. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. Oh, this is actually a tough one, particularly for you, I think. Mountain or beach? Oh, that's not tough at all. That's actually beach. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, warm sun and water. Uh, yeah, can't pass that one up. Pet or plant? <sighs> I wish the answer was pet. I am a proud succulent dad right now because I've, I've back to traveling too much to have a pet, but um, I'd love to be <laughs> a pet man. Unfortunately, I'm a, a plant man. Don't tell my succulent. Another Another time in your life. Power or money? Um, if if I could, if I could slightly adjust the question and, and say it's influence or money, I think I would I would go for in, influence. And and I guess maybe power is kind of the heavy handed version of that. But the ability to to change the world in the in the right direction is is that's one of the things that that makes life worth living. And what's wrong with power? Yeah, I think that's fair to call me on that. Um, I, I think not, nothing wrong with it. I think I maybe I initially heard the word as there's something authoritarian to it. I'd like to believe that I would have the ability to convince people to see the world a different way or to try something new rather than force them to. And I sort of associate the former with influence and the latter with power. Maybe maybe that's not fair. It's probably not. No, I think that's an important distinction to make. And, and I also really liked secretly that you felt empowered to change the question yourself without even asking. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that probably speaks to your your entrepreneur entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit. BJ, tell us one thing that someone listening to you in this interview right now, someone who cares about the same things that you do, can do to make a difference. I think one of the biggest fears I have for the world is, you know, solving climate change is, is not going to happen on a, a five-year time span. Um, we're lucky if it happens on a 50-year time span. And if we keep having kind of fits and starts on, on solving the problem, we will never get there. But that'd be the biggest thing I'd encourage people to do is, is commit to, okay, now is the time. Let's quit delaying. Let's focus on moving the needle today and continuing to make better plans for the future and not accepting excuses like, I think one of the, the examples I always give is your, your question about urban air quality previously. This notion of, oh, well, it's okay that five-year-olds in LA today have asthma because we'll have electric school buses in 2040. Like, we need to reject that type of thinking and start asking, no, why can't we start making this better today and looking at more ways of solving this problem? 
And how will you and listeners who care about similar work know that what you're doing actually matters and is making a difference? How do you measure that, engineer? <laughs> uh, we're lucky in that one that, you know, our, because our benefits are just so tightly coupled to the fuel with displacing, you know, we, we know how much people are, are using our equipment so we can quantify how much of that dirty diesel fuel was replaced by a decarbonized liquid alternative like an ethanol or another fuel in another market. And with that, we can say, I mean, if, if we have our, if we have our way and we're, you know, displacing all five gigatons of carbon that come from diesel right now, you know, based on what fraction of that we, we take, we can calculate how much carbon we kept out of the atmosphere. Um, so yeah, just, just about getting rid of the dirty fuel and replacing it with something better and, and making sure you track that closely. Cause that's the impact we got to have. BJ Johnson is the co-founder and CEO of Clearflame Engine Technologies. Thank you, BJ. Thank you, Yesh. In the next episode of Degrees. We don't have to know what the world's going to look like in 10 years. I think we can just take the next best step that really brings us alive and creates community and use that as our fuel and our passion to inspire change. Laura Schmidt grew up feeling like it was her sole responsibility to save the whole world from climate change. Eventually, she turned her anxiety, grief, and guilt into a fast-growing 10-step program for climate anxiety sufferers. In the next episode, she'll tell us how to cope with that climate anxiety so that we can make meaningful change in the world. And that's it for this episode of Degrees. You can find links to the resources in this episode and the entire series in your listening app. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Morse is our producer. Our executive producers are Rick Valu and Christina Mestre. Podcast Allies is our production company, and I am your host, Yesh Pavlik-Slank. But the foundation of the show is you. Share this episode with a friend and find your planet-saving career together. Thanks for listening. Change is coming, oh yeah. Hey.